Amen. I ask you if you would take your copy of God's Word and turn with me to Exodus chapter 8. We're going to be looking at chapter 8, verse 1, all the way to chapter 9, verse 7 this morning, covering the next four of these plagues. Once you have that, I'd ask you to stand with me out of respect for God's Word. And we're just going to read through verse 15 of chapter 8, and then we'll read through the rest of the passage during the course of the sermon. But stand with me as you're able, out of respect for God's Word, as I read Exodus chapter 8, verses 1 to 15. Then the Lord said to Moses, Go into Pharaoh and tell him, This is what the Lord says, Let my people go, so that they may worship me. But if you refuse to let them go, then I will plague all your territory with frogs. The Nile will swarm with frogs. They will come up and go into your palace, into your bedroom, and on your bed, into the houses of your officials and your people, and into your ovens and kneading bowls. The frogs will come up on you, your people, and all your officials. The Lord then said to Moses, Tell Aaron, stretch out your hand with your staff over the rivers, canals, and ponds, and cause the frogs to come up onto the land of Egypt. When Aaron stretched out his hand over the waters of Egypt, the frogs came up, and covered the land of Egypt. But the magicians did the same thing by their occult practices and brought frogs up onto the land of Egypt. Pharaoh summoned Moses and Aaron and said, Appeal to the Lord to remove the frogs from me and my people. Then I will let the people go, and they can sacrifice to the Lord. Moses said to Pharaoh, You may have the honor of choosing. When should I appeal on behalf of you, your officials, and your people, that the frogs be taken away from you and your houses and remain only in the Nile? Tomorrow, he answered, Moses replied, As you have said, so that you may know there is no one like the Lord our God, the frogs will go away from you, your houses, your officials, and your people. The frogs will remain only in the Nile. After Moses and Aaron went on from Pharaoh, Moses cried out to the Lord for help concerning the frogs that he had brought against Pharaoh. The Lord did as Moses had said. The frogs in the houses, courtyards, and fields died. They piled them in countless heaps, and there was a terrible odor in the land. But when Pharaoh saw there was relief, he hardened his heart and would not listen to them, as the Lord had said. This is God's word for us this morning. Please be seated. In his lectures to my students, Charles Spurgeon gave this advice to his students regarding what they should do with a minister of the gospel who had fallen into serious sin. This is what he said. He said, I hold very stern opinions with regard to Christian men who've fallen into gross sin. I rejoice that they may be truly converted and may be with mingled hope and caution received into the church, but I question, gravely question, whether a man who has grossly sinned should be readily restored to the pulpit. As John Angel James remarks, when a preacher of righteousness has stood in the way of sinners, he should never again open his lips in the great congregation until his repentance is as notorious as his sin. For Spurgeon, the issue in restoring a fallen minister was one of genuine repentance, and often demonstrating genuine repentance takes time, even years. But until a minister of the gospel has genuinely repented, he should be quiet. He should not go back into the ministry. That is, until his repentance is as notorious as his sin. But of course, you know, what's true of the Christian minister, it's also true of other believers. Uh, all of us sin, and we should hate our sin, and we should turn from our sin, and we should all pray that our, our repentance would be as notorious as our sin. 
Uh, that's the goal for us. We want our, our repentance to be seen in that way. Well, in our passage for study this morning, Pharaoh fails at precisely this point. He, he fails at repentance. God strikes Egypt again and again with plague. But Pharaoh, as you see, he never repents. Uh, he never turns away from his rebellion against God. He never hates his sin. Instead, what does he do? Yeah, he hardens his heart. And he does it over and over and over. And as a result, Egypt uh, experiences increasing ruin because of the stubbornness of Pharaoh and his hard heart. Now, we're continuing our study of the book of Exodus this morning. Last week, we looked at chapter 7, verse 14 to verse 25. And we saw the first plague that the Lord brought against Pharaoh and the people of Egypt as he turned the water of the Nile into blood. And in a moment, uh, the source of Egypt's life became a source of death. But it was really a powerful demonstration of the power of God. It was a powerful demonstration that God was the true God, not Pharaoh. And even that God is the true source of life, that he holds life in his hand. Well, this morning we're looking at chapter 8, verse 1 to chapter 9, verse 7. We're continuing our study of the 10 plagues. I, I had the grand ambition of teaching all of, you know, the next eight plagues that didn't make it, but we made it halfway through. So we're going to cover the second through the fifth plague this morning and try to learn some good truths that we see here for our own lives as we continue our look at this passage. Here's what we're going to see this morning. We're going to continue to see Yahweh, the Lord, He continues to work out His sovereign purposes in the life of Pharaoh and the Egyptians and his people. In chapter 5, verse 2, uh, Pharaoh had arrogantly asked the question, Who is the Lord? that I should worship him and obey him and let the people of Israel go. Well, through these plagues, Yahweh has a particular mission, and it is to tell Pharaoh precisely who Yahweh is. Pharaoh would come to know who the Lord is. And more than this, Yahweh is intentionally humiliating the false gods of Egypt. And regularly as we go through these plagues, we're going to see how particular deities of Egypt are being unmasked as worthless idols who are completely unworthy of worship. Now, there's a lot in the verses we're studying this morning, from chapter 8, verse 1, to chapter 9, verse 7. We could study these verses in many different ways. But for the, for the sake of this sermon this morning, we're going to be looking at four truths that kind of flow out of this passage. And then those four truths are going to be the four points for your sermon this morning. And I hope you got the handout because all of the points are long. But you will see them on the screen, and it will help you if you're taking notes. So four truths from Exodus chapter 8, verse 1 to chapter 9, verse 7. First point, first truth that we're going to see this morning is that genuine repentance is marked by sorrow for sin, not sorrow for consequences. Second truth this morning, those who are willfully rebellious are in danger of destruction. A third truth, God makes a distinction between those who belong to Him and those who do not. And a fourth truth this morning, the Lord is sovereign over times and seasons, and each one of those truths is going to flow out of each one of the plagues that we study this morning. Let's look at that first truth then. Genuine repentance is marked by sorrow for sin, not sorrow for consequences. And we see that in verses 1 to 15 of chapter 8, which we just read a moment ago. Now, in the religion of Egypt, the Egyptian goddess Heket was displayed, depicted as a woman with a frog's head. She was the spouse of the creator god, Noom. Noom's job was to create humans using his kind of wheel, his potter's wheel, and then Heket was to breathe the breath of life into them. For Egyptians, Heket was the agent of life-giving power. She was also a, a fertility symbol for them. 
Interestingly, she was also responsible for keeping the frogs in the Nile in check by using the crocodiles. So looking at verses 1 to 15, it's very clear that Heket is powerless as the Lord causes the frogs to multiply vastly and come up and cover the land of Egypt. Now in verse 1, the Lord comes to Moses and tells him to go to Pharaoh yet again and to command Pharaoh to let the Israelites go so they could worship him. So again, the issue in Exodus is the glory of God, the Lord being worshipped by his people, Pharaoh standing in the way, and so Pharaoh gets a warning. Verses 2 to 4, what's going to happen if Pharaoh doesn't obey, if he doesn't let the Israelites go? Well, the Nile is going to swarm with frogs. That word swarm, it's really, it's a word teeming. Uh, it's used in Genesis 1 to speak of the life that God created, which was teeming throughout the world. It's also used earlier in Exodus as a, a picture of the way that the people of Israel, they were multiplying and reproducing so quickly. They were teeming, they were swarming in that way. But now as an act of judgment, the Nile was going to be swarming, teeming with frogs, and they weren't going to stay in the Nile. They were going to come up on the land. But they weren't only going to come up on the land. They were going to go everywhere. They were to go into ovens and into jars, into beds. They would even come up on the Egyptians, even onto Pharaoh himself. In verse 5 to 7, we see that's what happened. Moses commands Aaron to stretch out his staff over the rivers and canals and pools of Egypt. And the frogs, they miraculously multiply, and then they march forth together. Now, this probably seemed a bit humorous at first. I think the children probably laughed when they saw all of these frogs, but I don't think the joke lasted very long. It's very difficult to sleep when you have frogs jumping around your bed. In response, what does Pharaoh do? Well, he calls his magicians. And now, once again, through their occult practices, through the power of Satan, they're able to reproduce the miracle. But you know, it doesn't help anything at all. Because Egypt, the Egyptians, they don't need more frogs. What they need is relief from the frogs. They need the frogs to go away. But it's very clear that these magicians and Satan, they're, they're unable to do that. They're unable to turn back this miracle. And so in verse 8 now, in desperation, what does Pharaoh do? Well, Pharaoh now comes to Moses and he asks Moses and Aaron, he says, plead with the Lord to take away the frogs. Now that's significant because remember, what did, what did Pharaoh say in chapter 5, verse 2? Uh, who is the Lord that I should obey him? I do not know the Lord. But now the Lord has turned the Nile into blood. Now he's caused the Nile to teem with frogs and frogs to cover the land. Now Pharaoh is realizing that the Lord, and notice that Pharaoh uses the covenant name, Yahweh, so it's personal at this point. He realized that Yahweh was powerful, and he realized that Yahweh, who could create the frogs, was also able to take the frogs away. And so Pharaoh promises that he'll let the people of Israel go. But notice, after the Lord acts. Yeah, Pharaoh still wants to be in control. Uh, he still wants to dictate the terms in this relationship. Now, in verses 9 to 14, we see what happened. Moses told Pharaoh that he could choose when the frogs would go away. Moses gave him the honor. Why? Because Moses wanted Pharaoh to learn more about the Lord. Moses wanted Pharaoh to see that there is no one like the Lord. I love that as you read through Exodus, these uh, chapters, over and over that word no is so important that you would know the Lord, and that you'd know that there's no one like the Lord. Moses wanted Pharaoh to see that the Lord was sovereign, listen, even over the timing of the miracles. And we'll talk about that later. So when Pharaoh said, tomorrow, well, that's what's going to happen. Moses goes out, he prays, asks the Lord to remove the frogs, and the Lord did precisely as Moses had requested. And the next day, the frogs went away, 
But the frogs did not probably go away in the way that Pharaoh was expecting. They simply died. And the Egyptians had to pile them up into heaps and heaps and heaps of frogs. And they stunk. But you know, after Pharaoh had made a promise that he would let the people go, he did something evil. Once again, as soon as there was relief, he hardens his heart. And he doesn't let the people go. So what should we learn? Well, we should learn that first truth this morning. Genuine repentance is marked by sorrow for sin and not sorrow for consequences. Now, we see this truth in verse 15 especially. Look at verse 15 of chapter 8. But when Pharaoh saw that there was relief, he hardened his heart and would not listen to them as the Lord had said. That word that's translated relief there, it speaks of, uh, of respite, of rest, really of room. The idea is that there's room. And so before, when all of the frogs were everywhere, Pharaoh was feeling great pressure to do something. But as soon as the frogs died, well, then there was a relief of pressure. And how did Pharaoh respond? Well, he responded by hardening his heart. He refused to listen to God's command. He refused to let the people of Israel go. So before the frogs had died, there was pressure to do something. But now that the frogs have died, now the pressure is released. And now Pharaoh is free to do what he wants to do. You know, before the pressure was there, Pharaoh looked like he was ready to repent, didn't he? He said he would. Uh, He seemed like he realized that he was in the wrong and that he needed to change what he was doing. But notice that that's just how he looked on the outside. Because nothing had really changed within Pharaoh. And we know that because as soon as the pressure went away, as soon as the stress went away, as soon as the consequences went away for his actions, what does he do? Well, just as a dog returns to his vomit, so Pharaoh returns to his sin. He hardens his heart and he refuses to obey. And listen, many people do exactly the same thing. So the man who is caught in adultery initially seems repentant. He seems like he's grieved by his sin. He makes great promises. He talks about how bad he feels. He says he'll never do it again. But then time goes by, and the consequences start to go away. Right? His, his wife isn't as angry. She stops keeping such, such close accounts to his actions. And because the, the pressure and the consequences are moving away, and because his heart hasn't changed, well, he begins to take second looks at women in the office once again. Similarly, the man who is verbally abusing his wife, that's an evil sin. I pray that will never mark anyone in Christ's fellowship. The man who is verbally abusing his wife seems repentant and sorry, As soon as the elders find out about it and confront him for his sin, he makes great promises. He's going to change. And for a time, it seems like he's willing to change. He's doing that. But then time goes by and the consequences lessen and people seem to move on. And the next thing you know, he returns to that evil sin once again. The gossip seems repentant when she's confronted by a friend who's been hurt by her gossip. She's concerned because the relationship seems like it may be coming to an end. She tells her friends, I'll never do that again. I'm going to turn away from that. For a time, she seems to, but then time goes by and the strain in the relationship lessens and the gossip goes back to her gossip, talking about other people's business once again. Christ Fellowship, the Bible is very clear. There are both godly and worldly forms of sorrow. We read that in 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 10. Let me read that again. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, but worldly grief produces death. What's the difference between a godly sorrow and a worldly sorrow? Well, the difference is what we're grieved about. 
the one who has godly sorrow, the one who's genuinely repentant, is sorry for the way his or her sin has offended God. Sorry for the way the sin has dishonored God and impacted others. They're broken over their sin. They, they hate their sin. They want to turn away from their sin. But the one with false repentance, the one with the worldly grief, is sorry because he or she got caught. You see, they're sorry for the consequences that they're having to feel and to bear. And like Pharaoh, yeah, they don't like the consequences. But like Pharaoh, as soon as the consequences go away, as soon as the frogs leave... You go right back to it. Why? Because there's been no genuine repentance. There's only been a worldly repentance. And there's all the difference in the world between a genuine repentance that's marked by sorrow for sin and a false repentance that is marked by sorrow for consequences. One leads to life. One is evidence of genuine salvation. The other leads to death. The other demonstrates that there's been no genuine repentance in the heart. So brothers and sisters, as a church, let's not settle for the counterfeit. And when we sin, let's acknowledge our sin. You know, we believe the gospel that says we're so bad, the very Son of God had to come into this world and die for our sins. We, that's the gospel we believe. That's what we profess. So we don't have to cling to some kind of cheap righteousness. We can confess our sins, and we can hate our sins, and we can turn from our sins, and we can help one another walk in a genuine repentance. And may God help us do that so that we would be like Jesus. Now, if we're, if we're talking about repentance, we're, we're talking about really something that's at the very heart of our faith. You know, see, part of the way that we respond to the gospel is by repenting. At the very heart of the gospel is bad news. It's bad news that God created us, that he loves us, that he wants to have a relationship with us. But our first parents, they rebelled against God. Uh, they were very much like Pharaoh. They wanted to have it their own way. They wanted to live their own way. They wanted to serve themselves as opposed to serve God. They wanted to decide for themselves what's good and bad so they could do what they wanted to do. They sinned, we sinned in them, and because we come from them, we've all inherited that same sinful nature that really wants to be God of our own lives. Uh, it's, a, it's a principle of the heart that turns us in on ourselves so that we kind of shape our lives so that everything around us flows around us so that it's all about us. That's how we look at life. We become kings and queens of a pathetic little universe, and we harm other people to get what we want. And we've all done this countless times. We've all sinned. The Bible says all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That's the bad news of Christianity. Uh, and the bad news is that our sin, it separates us from God. Uh, God is holy. We're not holy. Uh, there's no way that we could stand in the presence of a holy God. So if we were to stand before God based on how we've lived our lives, uh, none of us would be able to stand there. None of us would be accepted. Well, you have to understand, Christianity is not about how you can be a nicer person so God will like you. Christianity is the proclamation that all of us have failed to be pleasing to God and that we all deserve His judgment. But then there's good news, and we love this good news at Christ Fellowship. It is that God so loved the world that He sent His Son. And the eternal, God is, the eternal Son of God is so gracious and loving that He came into this world. Uh, he lowered Himself from the glory of heaven, coming into this poor, broken world to live a perfect life. Because, friend, you and I, we have failed to live that life. That's what He was doing. He was living a perfect life because we needed perfect righteousness. And then when the time was right, He went to Jerusalem intentionally to die because He was going to be the Lamb of God who would take away the sin of the world. That was His mission. And on the cross, He died. 
The wrath of God is poured out on him for our sins. He died, but then he rose from the dead. And now this message, it's a simple message. If you will repent, if you will turn from your sins, if you'll acknowledge your sins, if you'll grieve over your sins and turn from your sins and put your trust in Jesus and Jesus alone, God will forgive you. He will be your savior. He will receive you as his son or daughter. And he will give you the promise of eternal life in Christ. And friend, it's nothing you can earn. It's simply something you receive by faith. So trust in him this morning. Turn from your sin this morning. And believe in Jesus this morning. And you will be saved. When we look at chapter 8, verses 1 to 15, we see that genuine repentance is marked by sorrow for sin and not sorrow for consequences. Here's a second truth we see. Those who are willfully rebellious are in danger of destruction. Look with me, if you will, at verses 16 to 19. The Egyptian god Geb was the god of the earth. That's how the Egyptians understood the earth. He was a god. And they believed that his laughter caused earthquakes. They believed that Geb was also responsible for causing the crops to grow. But Geb like a cat, is also humiliated when the Lord takes the soil, the dust of the earth, and turns them into gnats to torment the Egyptians. Look at verse 16 to 19. Then the Lord said to Moses, Tell Aaron, stretch out your staff and strike the dust of the land. It will become gnats throughout the land of Egypt. And they did this. Aaron stretched out his hand with his staff. And when he struck the dust of the land, gnats were on people and animals. And all the dust of the land became gnats throughout the land of Egypt. The magicians tried to produce gnats using their occult practices, but they could not. The gnats remained on the people and the animals. This is the finger of God, the magician said to Pharaoh. But Pharaoh's heart was hard, and he would not listen to them as the Lord had said. You notice that, that Moses doesn't go to Pharaoh and announce this third plague to Pharaoh beforehand. As we mentioned, the first nine plagues are, are really formed into three sets of three. And the first two of each set are announced, but then the third comes without announcement. It's like the Lord is a boxer and he hits Pharaoh with, a, with an uppercut that Pharaoh never sees coming. In verse 16, the Lord commands Moses to tell Aaron to stretch out his staff and to strike the land and the dust becomes gnats and the gnats go everywhere. And in verse 17, Aaron does this. And that's what happens. The gnats go everywhere. It says all the dust of the land. And the idea is just everywhere there's dust. Now all of a sudden there's gnats all throughout the land of Egypt. Now our English translations translates the Hebrew word as gnats. But that Hebrew word actually that's translated gnats in our translations, it's often translated as lice. So it's very possible that instead of envisioning gnats kind of flying around the Egyptians, we should be seeing lice crawling everywhere. Either way, the plague's terrible and disgusting. Now look at verse 18. The magicians, they try to reproduce the miracle once again as if that would help. But this time, they're unable. And now the Lord's making another distinction. Now the Lord's showing that he's sovereign and able to shut down the occult power of these magicians. And the magicians, they get the message in verse 19. They realize that they have been beaten in this spiritual competition, this spiritual contest. And so they turn to Pharaoh and they say, this is the finger of God. Now, they've realized something. They, they've come up against a power that's far too great for them. 
Now, they've not become followers of Yahweh. Actually, the word God there, uh, it's a general Hebrew word for God, Elohim. It's a general name. So we should not understand these magicians to have any kind of personal relationship with Yahweh. But they do know when they've been licked. And so for the rest of Exodus, we will not see the magicians try to perform another miracle all throughout. But then look at the hardness of Pharaoh's heart, right? His own magicians have come to him and said, this is the finger of God, but Pharaoh doesn't, he doesn't repent. He knows what he's doing. He understands that he's fighting against Yahweh. Remember, he just asked Moses and Aaron to pray to Yahweh to take away the, the frogs. But Pharaoh is willfully rebellious. He's sinning against knowledge. He knows what he's doing, but he continues to rebel. He refuses to accept that there's no way he can win. He goes on stubbornly in his rebellion against the Lord. So what should we take from this? We should take that second lesson. Those who are willfully rebellious are in danger of destruction. I'm thinking here most especially of people who are intellectually convinced in the truths of Christianity. Uh, They're intellectually convinced that Jesus is God, that Jesus died on the cross for sinners, uh, even that Jesus is coming again to judge the living and the dead. But for all of that, they refuse to turn from their sins and put their trust in Jesus. And many children who grow up in our church are like this. They know Jesus. uh, They believe truths about Jesus. But they don't love him. And they don't want to follow him. And when you talk with them about Jesus, they quickly change the topic or they just act like they're uninterested. What's the problem? Well, the problem is that they're like like Pharaoh. Uh, They're hardened in their rebellion. And many children who grow up in our churches, well, they know Jesus is God intellectually, but they don't care. They want to live their own way and do their own thing because they're willfully rebellious. So let me say uh, a word to you, uh, young people this morning, as you sit and listen speaking to you directly. And of course, this isn't only young people. You don't have to be young to commit this sin. But if you're honest, would you have to admit that you're convinced that Jesus is God? Would you have to admit that you're convinced that he died on the cross for sinners like you and that you're a sinner, but you haven't yet turned from your sin and put your trust in Jesus? Well, I'm speaking to you about that because that kind of willful rebellion is a dangerous thing. We're not guaranteed tomorrow. You're not guaranteed the future. And so many young people think this, well, I'm just going to get serious about Jesus later, but for now, I'm going to do what I want to do. Young people, don't believe the devil's lie. You're not promised later. The Bible says today is the day of salvation. And the Bible says all who trust in Jesus, all who turn to him, all who repent will be saved. And so our appeal to you this morning is don't continue on in hard-heartedness towards Christ Don't ignore it. Don't act like it's not important. Trust in Jesus today because he's gracious and he's good and he will receive you. And if you want to talk about that, I'd love to talk with you. I know your parents would love to talk with you about Christ and your relationship with him and help you think through what it would look like for you to truly follow Jesus. We pray that you'll do that this morning. We'd have no greater joy than to see you do that. There's a third truth that we want to see this morning. God makes a distinction between those who belong to him and those who do not. God makes a a distinction between those who belong to him and those who don't. 
Now, growing up, I loved the pool. It's what we did in the summer. All summer long, we went to the pool, and we were at the pool every day, and we swam for hours and hours and hours with our friends. There was everything about the pool that I loved. There was one thing about the pool, though, that I did not love, and that was horseflies. Because the horseflies would come out of nowhere, and they would bite you, and it hurt. Now, imagine what it would be like to be surrounded by swarms of horseflies just trying to get at you and bite you. Well, that's what Pharaoh and the Egyptians were facing in the fourth plague. Look at verse 20 to 32. The Lord said to Moses, Get up early in the morning and present yourself to Pharaoh when you see him going out to the water. Tell him, this is what the Lord says, Let my people go so that they may worship me. But if you will not let my people go, then I will send swarms of flies against you, your officials, your people, and your houses. The Egyptians' houses will swarm with flies, and so will the land where they live. But on that day, I will give special treatment to the land of Goshen, where my people are living. No flies will be there. This way you will know that I, the Lord, am in the land. I will make a distinction between my people and your people. The sign will take place tomorrow. And the Lord did this. Thick swarms of flies went into Pharaoh's palace and his officials' houses. Throughout Egypt, the land was ruined because of the swarms of flies. Then Pharaoh summoned Moses and Aaron and said, Go sacrifice to your God within the country. But Moses said, It would not be right to do that, because what we will sacrifice to the Lord our God is detestable to the Egyptians. If we sacrifice what the Egyptians detest in front of them, won't they stone us? We must go a distance of three days into the wilderness and sacrifice to the Lord our God as he instructs us. Pharaoh responded, I will let you go and sacrifice to the Lord your God in the wilderness, but don't go very far. Make an appeal for me. As soon as I leave you, Moses said, I will appeal to the Lord, and tomorrow the swarms of flies will depart from Pharaoh, his officials, and his people. But Pharaoh must not act deceptively again by refusing to let the people go and sacrifice to the Lord. Then Moses left Pharaoh's presence and appealed to the Lord. The Lord did as Moses had said. He removed the swarms of flies from Pharaoh, his officials, and his people. Not one was left. But Pharaoh hardened his heart this time also and did not let the people go. So this now is the fourth plague. God commands Moses and Aaron to confront Pharaoh and to warn him once again, teaching the lesson over and over. If you do not obey, well, now you're always going to send swarms of flies against him. But then notice that, that the Lord adds something here. He, he says, I'm going to make a distinction between you and my people. Between the Egyptians and the Israelites, there would be flies all over Egypt, but there will be no flies in the land of Goshen where the Hebrews live. Why? So that Pharaoh would know that the Lord was with his people. And I love that. Uh, the Lord is in the land. The Lord is with his people. It's an amazing blessing. In fact, we're going to see from this point on, the Israelites are going to be protected from every plague. As the Lord continues to make a distinction between those who belong to him and those who do not belong to him. And that's what happened. The next day, uh, God sends flies against Egyptians. And we should not think of these as house flies. House flies are dirty. They're disgusting. They're annoying. They get in everything. But actually, when you read Psalm 78, verse 45, it says that God sent among the Egyptians swarms of flies which fed on them. So these are biting flies. And in Exodus 8, verse 24 we see that the land was ruined because of the swarms of flies. So apparently they bit everything. And this was a terrible plague. And, and Pharaoh responds quickly. Uh, once again, he comes to Moses and Aaron and he says that, that he wants their help. He says, I'll let, I'll let the people go. They can sacrifice to the Lord their God. 
but just let them do it in the land. Again, what's Pharaoh doing? He's trying to control the terms. He's still trying to be king in the situation. Moses refuses and says they must go three days into the wilderness as God had commanded them. And when Pharaoh said that the people could do that, Moses pleads with the Lord to remove the flies. But before he does that, he warns Pharaoh not to cheat again. He's making a point to Pharaoh about what Pharaoh is doing with his hard-heartedness. And Moses goes out and he prays. And then what happens? The next day, according to the Lord's time, all the flies vanish. And we're supposed to see a miracle here. There's not one fly left. They're all gone. This is another miracle that the Lord is doing. Not one remained. But then Pharaoh, as soon as he gets relief, once again, he refuses to repent. Now, looking at this plague, we learn that third truth. The Lord makes a distinction between those who belong to him and those who do not. It's very clear in this passage. God makes a point of treating his people, the Israelites, differently than he treats the Egyptians. The Egyptians, they're plagued by biting flies, uh, and there's no flies in the land of Goshen where the Israelites are. Now, many liberal Christians hate the idea that God makes a distinction between those who belong to him and those who do not. They like to say things like, we are all God's children. Have you heard that? We are all God's children. As if God views every single person on earth exactly the same way. The problem with that idea is the Bible. The Bible simply doesn't teach that. Yeah, the Bible teaches that there's a very clear distinction between those who belong to God and, and those who don't. In our church's statement of faith, uh, we make this distinction clear this way. This is how it puts it. We believe that there is a radical and essential difference between the righteous and the wicked. That such only as through faith are justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and sanctified by the Spirit of our God are truly righteous in His esteem, while all such as continue in impenitence and unbelief are in His sight wicked and under the curse. And this distinction holds among men both in and after death. Now be careful. As you listen to what I just read, you might think I'm saying, if you're on our team, that means you're a good guy because we're all so righteous. Look at the good things we do. That's not at all what we believe. Now, you see, the righteousness that we have in the eyes of God, it's a righteousness that comes outside of us through Jesus. It's given to us as a gift of his grace, and it is received by faith. And so those who belong to God, we belong to God for one reason and one reason only, because we've trusted in Jesus. And so we have standing before God because of Jesus. That's the hope that we have. Friend, that's the hope we want you to have. And those who have not trusted in Jesus, in the eyes of God, according to the Bible, they're not righteous. It doesn't matter if you're caring for orphans. It doesn't matter if you give a lot of money away. It doesn't matter if you're very sincere in your deeply held religious beliefs. The Bible says all those who are outside of Christ are in his esteem wicked. So there's two kinds of people. This is what the Bible teaches. Friends, you just have to read the Bible for yourself. Don't just listen to me. Read it for yourself. There are two kinds of people. There are the righteous, those who have a relationship with God through Jesus, and then there are the wicked, those who have not submitted to God through Christ. Jesus says there's the narrow path that leads to life. And how many people find that? Few. But then there's the broad way that leads to destruction. And how many people find that way? How many people? There are children of God, those who are children of God, 1 John chapter 3, verse 10. And then there are children of the devil, those who live like their father. 
And God makes a distinction between those who belong to him and those who don't. Those who belong to God are like the Israelites in Goshen. I, Christ Fellowship, I hope you realize that. It's not saying we don't face trials. It's saying that we never face trials on our own. God is in the land. Uh, he's with us. He protects us. He provides for us. He blesses us with everything we need. And even better, he gives us the hope that we prayed about this morning, this hope of of endless joy in his presence forever and ever and ever in a perfect world where there is no further tears or trials or death. But those who do not belong to God are like the Egyptians. They are living out their lives under the wrath of God for their sin. And if they continue in that rebellion, they will face God's judgment forever. Friend, that's simply what the Bible teaches. It's either true or it's not true. But it's not a matter of subjective opinion. It's what God has said. It is true. So here's my question, friend. Which are you? Are you righteous because you're in Jesus? Or when God looks at you, does he say, wicked, rejecting me, rejecting life, like Pharaoh going his or her own way? Which are you? Today, if you will turn from your sins and trust in Jesus... God will accept you. So trust in him today. There's a fourth truth this morning. The Lord is sovereign over times and seasons. Chapter 9, verses 1 to 7. The Egyptians worshipped the bull as a fertility figure. Many of their gods were portrayed as bulls. Gods such as Bacchus and Nevis and Apis were depicted as bulls. Hathor, the goddess of love, motherhood and fertility. There are lots of gods and goddesses of fertility in the Egyptian cult. Uh, she's depicted as a woman with bull's horns. Sometimes bulls were considered to embody the gods of Ta and Ra. Uh, that brings a little bit of color, right, to the rebellion of Israel in the wilderness when they make bulls. Brings a little color to that and what they were actually doing there, the way they were bringing in their old religion. Well, the Egyptians, they, they loved bulls. And so they were devastated by this next plague, the fifth plague, which killed all of the livestock of Egypt. Looked at Chapter 9, verses 1 to 7 again. Then the Lord said to Moses, Go into Pharaoh and say to him, This is what the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, says, Let my people go, so that they may worship me. But if you refuse to let them go and keep holding them, then the Lord's hand will bring a severe plague against your livestock in the field, the horses, donkeys, camels, herds, and flocks. But the Lord will make a distinction between the livestock of Israel and the livestock of Egypt, so that nothing of all that the Israelites own will die. And the Lord set a time, saying, Tomorrow the Lord will do this thing in the land. The Lord did this the next day. All the Egyptian livestock died, but none among the Israelite livestock died. Pharaoh sent messengers who saw that not a single one of the Israelite livestock was dead, but Pharaoh's heart was hard, and he did not let the people go. These verses are quite straightforward. You understand what's happening here. Verses 1 to 3, God tells Moses to go and command Pharaoh to let the Israelites go. And to warn him that if he refuses to do so, all of the livestock of Egypt will die. All the horses, donkeys, camels, herds, flocks. This is much of the wealth of the people. And in verse 9, God says that he would make a distinction once again between his people and the Egyptians. The flocks of the Egyptians will die, but not one of the flocks of the Israelites will die. And when would God do this? Look at verse 5. He'll do it tomorrow. And on the next day, that's what happened. 
Uh, this wasn't just mad cow disease. It was mad horse, camel, sheep, goat, and cow disease. And it would have been a terrible loss in an agrarian culture where much of your wealth is found in the livestock that you owned. And all of it happened in one day. And so Pharaoh goes and he sends his servants to see, well, what happened to the livestock of the Israelites? And just as God had said, not one of the cattle or horses or donkeys or sheep or goats of the Israelites had died. And yet Pharaoh's heart is still, listen, it's diamond hard. And he doesn't let the people of Israel go. One final lesson this morning from this. The Lord is sovereign over times and seasons. Now, we see this in the way that the Lord sets the timing for the plague to fall upon the animals tomorrow. And we've also seen God's tom- uh, sovereignty over times and seasons earlier in the, in the plague of the frogs. Uh, when Pharaoh asked for them to go away the next day, they did. And when Moses prayed that the flies would go away the next day, they did. Our God is sovereign over times and seasons. And what that means is that everything happens precisely on God's schedule. When God determines it will happen. And that, brothers and sisters, is a wonderful encouragement for us. Why? Because just as God is sovereign over the times and seasons of sending and been bringing relief to these plagues in Egypt, so he is sovereign over when he sends and removes sufferings in our lives as well. And I know that many of you are experiencing suffering this morning. Some of us have been battling illness for a long time. Others of us have known the heartbreak of broken relationships for a long time. For others of us, your life seems to have kind of spiraled out of control, and you're wondering, when is this going to end? Brother, sister, be encouraged. Your God is sovereign over times and seasons. He's in control. He has permitted your trial at the right time. And he will bring you through that trial at the right time. At Christ Fellowship, we sing a song entitled, What Ere My God Ordains is Right. It was written in 1675 by a, a German brother named Samuel Rodegast. He was encouraging a friend who had been sick for a very long time. And the second verse says this, What ere my God ordains is right, he never will deceive me. He leads me by the proper path. I know he will not leave me. I take content what he hath sent. His hand can turn my griefs away, and patiently I wait his day. His hand can turn my griefs away. Yeah, I love that. It starts with faith. Whatever my God ordains is right. His hands can turn my griefs away, and then it ends in action. And so patiently I wait his day. Now, brothers and sisters, we honor God when we suffer well. We honor God when we patiently wait his day for the suffering to be ended. And we can do that because we know he'll do so in his perfect time. Well, as we leave Egypt this morning, you can see that the land is being ruined. It's being ruined for one reason, because Pharaoh will not repent. It's a good reminder to us to live lives filled with genuine repentance this week doing that all the way to heaven. And may God help us do that. And let's pray. Lord God, we praise you that in Christ, there is room for repentance. And Father, even this morning, for the one sitting here who does not know you, I pray that you would impress upon his heart or her heart that even right now there's room for repentance. If they will turn from their sins and trust in Jesus, they will be saved. 
And Lord God, as a church, we want our lives to be marked by a genuine repentance for sin. That we would hate the things that you hate and love the things that you love. And we would do that in increasing measure more and more as we continue to walk with you all the way to heaven. Please help us as we do that this week. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.